following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, going through the book of Numbers. And uh, as um, Nathan gave a great prelude introduction, uh, this, this is just one of the most riveting passages in the Bible. Uh, but it is true. And, and actually, it's, it's actually, there's some good stuff in here. And I've titled this message, um, we have that slide up, uh, I've titled it, uh, The Purpose of the Church. And you may think, how in the world can we know anything about the church from the book of Numbers? But actually, um, I don't think I'm stretching things too far. Uh, and so, uh, it's an important topic. The, the purpose of the church. What is the church? But more importantly, what, what is the purpose of the church? Right? What are we about? Back in the 90s, Rick Warren wrote a great book, The, the Purpose Driven Church. He made it uh, the point that all the activities of the church that we do are kind of pointless and meaningless if we don't know the purpose of it. Right? Otherwise, it just becomes busyness. Uh, it can be really just literally kind of running around in circles being busy if we don't know where we're going. Uh, and so he makes a case that really how we do church must be determined by the purpose of the church. Now, uh, I think he could have done a better job explaining the purpose of the church, and he kind of leaves the impression that we can invent our own purpose. And I would say that actually that kind of misses the point, because I think God knew why he called into existence the church. And he has a very clear purpose for it. And he's made that purpose clear throughout Scripture. Uh, not only in the New Testament, but actually in the Old Testament. And of course, what we're going through in Numbers, um, uh, a lot of the focus has been the tabernacle and the camp. Uh, and and uh, the, the tabernacle, as we'll see, really portrays points to uh, what the church would someday fulfill and be. Now, uh, I think this is a very relevant topic, especially here in Thailand. I've been uh, here for 17 years now. I've been pastoring this church for 16, and I don't want to pick on anybody, so I'm not, I'm not picking on you personally, but I've just observed over my 16, 17 years, a lot of people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people come and go, and I would say that many of them do not understand the purpose of the church. Um, and and it's, it's not like a mystery, because a lot of them have told me that. A lot of Christian workers, full-time workers here have said to me, I just really don't understand like church, like how do we do church? Like as a missionary, as a Christian worker living overseas, we don't really kind of know where it fits into our life. And they're just being honest. And I think it's true. Uh, how do we do church here? And how does it fit into our life and the bigger picture of missions in our own ministries? Um, so it's an important question. I think vitally important that we, we, we answer this question, what is the purpose of the church? And, th- and there's a lot of candidates for this, right? So just right now in your head, uh, this is dangerous, but just in your head, like put in there, the purpose of the church is, just fill in the blank, the purpose of the church is, right? Okay, let's see if you got it. Okay, anybody want to volunteer? No, we won't. <laughs> no that's not it. No, we won't do that. Uh, here's some posi- some candidates. Um, first church I came, came to Christ in, clearly they believe the purpose of the church was evangelism. Everything was about evangelism. Every sermon was a gospel, uh, get saved message. 
or it was a pep talk to get us to go out and be soul winners, right? That was the whole thing. But the kind of funny thing is, once you got them in, what did you do with them? Well, you just send them out to get more and bring more in, right? That was that was the whole thing. The perp, they saw the purpose of the church as getting people saved, right? Get those lost people saved. Um, a lot of people would see some of the flaws in that, uh, and they may say, well, the real purpose of the church is making disciples. And we've got scripture for this one, right? Go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. That must be the purpose of the church. Um, some might say uh, it's a place of fellowship and community. I had a, a missionary tell me one time, I go to church because it's a great place to network. All about networking. Right? Is that the purpose? Is that why you're here this morning? To network. Right? Um, some would argue, no, the purpose of the church is helping the poor and social justice and you know, impacting society. Right? Um, some would say, you know, there's buildings and there's programs and, you know, we've got to keep that stuff going. Uh, some may say, well, all that's good, but the real purpose is worship, the glory of God, right? A lot of options, a lot of candidates here, so, so which one is going to be the right one? Uh, now, these are all important activities and events of the church, and so it's not that none of them are relevant or necessary, but what's the purpose of the church, right? Well, we're going to see that from uh, Numbers chapter 7 through 9. Um, and, and as I said, uh, it's about the tabernacle. And we read in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, uh, these words. Um, and I'm not going to read yet all of this passage, uh, but, but it gives kind of a little bit of the background. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, uh, brought gifts. Right? So, um, so this is actually going back in time. And, and Numbers is not in exact chronological order. And this actually goes back in time previous to what we've just looked at in the first six chapters. In fact, it goes back about one month in time uh, to actually all the way back to Exodus chapter 40. Right? And so we actually read at the end of Exodus, uh, God had given all these instructions for building this tabernacle, this portable tent of worship. And, and, and they, they built it and they erected it. And at the end of Exodus chapter 40, it's all completed. And, and there Moses uh, consecrated. He made holy all the implements and all the furniture. And so uh, the author, it's been a long time. All of Leviticus happened and first six chapters of Numbers. So the author is taking us back to this kind of long rabbit trail that he went on to get us back to that day, right, when, when the tabernacle was dedicated, was set up and established. Um, and on that day in Exodus, it says that the cloud filled the, the tabernacle so that Moses could not enter it. Right? And we're kind of left there. Uh, the, the, the tabernacle's there, uh, but everybody's standing outside and there's this cloud there and they can't enter. And so it's like, what's going to happen? And you've got the, the whole book of Leviticus where there's all these essentially the user's manual for it. And God gives all the instructions about how all these sacrifices and offerings were, were to be presented and the process that people could come to this tent and could use it. Right? And then we get to chapters uh, 1 through 6 of Numbers where the camp is laid out how the camp is to be organized. Uh, and the tabernacle is to be in the center of the camp. And it's this picture of God dwelling in their midst. So that's important. But now he picks up the rest of the story. From Exodus 40, uh, 
Uh, and, and Moses sets up the tabernacle. So let's read now. Um, now you got kind of the background. He picks it back up in chapter 7. I'm not going to read all of chapter 7. Let me just re- re- briefly read the first part here. So, so, so on that day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, it anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings, consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord. Six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for, uh, uh, for each one an ox. And they brought them before the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites. Right, so the first thing they do is they bring... All the tribal leaders, all the tribal leaders, bring uh, these gifts of six ox carts and twelve oxen, and and those are, are donated to the Levites, and they're important because this tent all had to be moved, and so uh, to give the God or the leaders or somebody felt bad for these poor Levites having to carry these big heavy tents and skins and hides and fabric, and so they give them a U-Haul, right? They get a U-Haul. So they can carry this stuff through the desert. That was very kind. They're supporting the ministry of the tent, right? And then it goes on and it gives, um, uh, it says, um, after they, they did that, then, then the Lord said to Moses, uh, uh, the, verse 10, the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar. So the first was for hauling the tent. Now they bring another offering for dedicating the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs, again, these twelve chiefs, offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. So twelve tribes, for twelve ensuing days, they're bringing these gifts. And this is what they're bringing. Uh, he who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, son of Abinadab of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one plate of silver, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin, 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of uh, fine flour mixed with oil for the grain offering, one gold dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one lamb, one year old uh, for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashon of Aminadab. On the second day, <laughs> it actually goes through all twelve, right? You got that? Got that list? They brought these offerings. I thought it might be fun. There's twelve of them. I thought we could kind of do like a song, you know, the twelve days of dedication of the temple, the tribe of Judah brought to God. Well, it goes, kind of goes downhill from there. I won't. I won't do the rest of it. Um, how does this relate to the church? Well, um, uh, the the tabernacle really is a picture of what God would one day do in bringing his people to himself as a collected body called the church, the body of Christ. And it's not stretching things to see in what's going on here something of the purpose for the church. Because the purpose of the tabernacle and God's heart in, in, in organizing all this stuff didn't change when we came to the new covenant. Now, the way it happens changed. When Jesus came, it changed the method completely. But the purpose did not change, right? So let's, let's look at this and see if we can discover something in here of the purpose that they had in the tent of meeting and how it instructs us about the purpose of the church. All right, so, so we've got this background here of what's going on. 
Um, and there's basically three things that take place in these chapters. And we're just going to survey really quickly. Uh, first thing, in chapter 7, the tribal leaders are bringing these gifts to the altar. Uh, and they serve two functions. One, they support uh, the transportation and kind of the operation of this tent. Right? It's a portable tent. So the ox carts and the oxen and the silver dishes, some of those things are given uh, to support the operation of it, to make it movable and to kind of help the Levites in, in uh, transporting it. But then the, 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 the bulls and the rams and the lambs, all these animals that are listed, are actually, are actually brought as offerings to participate in actually breaking in, dedicating the altar. Uh, and there's a burnt offering, there's a sin offering for, for sin, and there's peace offerings for fellowship. So there's a lot of food that's offering, and probably the tribe gathered, and as they offered these five goats and five lambs and oxen, there was uh, that tribe celebrating together by, by a, a fellowship meal at the, at the tabernacle. Um, then in chapter 8, uh, another story takes place where uh, the Levites are actually presented themselves as an offering. I mean, they don't, they don't bring an offering, they actually are the offering. So if you look in chapter 8, verse 5, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. And he describes this cleansing process in, in verses 5 through 10, where they cleanse with water, they shave uh, their hair, and then they wash their clothes. And then in verse 10 it says, uh, When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Now, if you know anything about the offerings, when you brought a bull or a ram or a lamb, the first thing you did before you killed it is you did what? You laid your hands on it. And it was a way of identifying with that offering that it was going to be your substitute. So instead of you getting your throat cut and being burned on the altar, you, you, you put your hands on the lamb and it becomes a substitute in your place. It's taking your place. And so it dies in your stead, right? Well, now they're supposed to do this with the Levites. Now, if you're the Levites, you're going to start getting kind of nervous. Bring the Levites to the front of the tabernacle, to the altar, and lay your hands on them. They're going, ah, whoa, stop, right? But that's what it says. Um, uh, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering. Oh, whew, whew. the wave offering was the one offering that you didn't get, like, killed. <laughs> uh, so they're off the hook. They're safe. Uh, but the Levites are actually an offering. The, the people of Israel are to bring the tribe of Levi and they are to offer the Levites to God as an offering, in a sense as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, literally. And the purpose was so that they could serve. They shall be a way of offering from the people of Israel that they may do service, do the service of the Lord. And he goes on and explains how they, which we already saw a couple chapters back, they were uh, taken, selected in place of the firstborn, which belonged to God. And so now they were be given, given in place of the, of the firstborn, and they were dedicated, they were given as an offering in service to God. Right? And so they would be doing the labor, a lot of the work of carrying and hauling and moving the tabernacle and of guarding it in place of the Israelites. Right? Um, uh, then we come to chapter 9, and what happens in chapter 9 is they're instructed to celebrate the Passover. Um, it says in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year, so this is year number two, uh, after they came out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time, 
Um, and the Passover was a great celebration of God's saving work from Egypt. Right, the first Passover was actually while they were still in Egypt, still in slavery. But uh, through the Passover, the shedding of the Passover lamb, their firstborn were spared when God sent the death angel and took the firstborn of all of Egypt. And as a result of that, Pharaoh let the Israelites go and they were redeemed. They were set free. And so they were to be celebrating this every year. And the time had come and so they were to be celebrating the Passover. So those are the three things that happen in these, in these chapters. First of all, they bring material offerings, right? Actual stuff. They bring out of their wealth, they bring material offerings brought through the representative leaders of each tribe, right? But it was a gift of the, all the people, right? Second thing, they, they, they dedicate the Levites, and this becomes a gift of dedicated service, right? And finally, they celebrate. So three things happen, right? They support the, Ministry of the Tabernacle by their material material gifts. They support the ministry by serving, and and they come there to worship, um, participating in the ministry of the Tabernacle through their gifts and offerings, their service, and through their celebration. Uh, so does this give us some picture of the purpose of the church? Um, well, if we take those three things, and it would be really tempting to take those three things and say, see, that now is the purpose of the church. Right? The, church, the church is a place uh, where we can give our money. Right? The church is a place where we can serve. And the church is a place where we can celebrate God's salvation. I could make a sermon out of that. But I promise it would be wrong. Because right? that's actually not the purpose of the church. And here's the problem. And, and the, the problem is that I think a lot of people kind of have this idea. Well, we have to give our tithes and offerings somewhere. So that's why the church exists. So I have a place to give my offerings. And we think, well, we have to serve God. And so that's why the church exists. So I have a place to serve God. And certainly we need to worship. And so the church exists as a place to worship. But here's the problem. If you've lived here for very long, you're, you're quite aware that there are countless places where you can give your money to support God's work. Right? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's all kinds of ministries all asking for money. Right? So, honestly, you don't need the church as a place to give your financial resources, right? If you need a place, I'll take some, right? I have projects, I have things, right? Uh, if that's the function of the church, then, some, then well, that's easy. I, I've got lots of options. I don't need the church to do that. Same thing's true for service. You, if you're here, you're probably here because you're serving all kinds of places. We live in a place where the opportunities to do work for the Lord, are endless, especially if you're willing to do it for free, right? Which is why we're here, because we just do this for nothing, right? That's what we do. And there's, there's endless opportunities to serve God. You don't need the church for that. And, I've, and, and this is where a lot of the confusion comes in for a lot of missionaries. They're like, well, when I was at home, my church back in my home country, I served God in the church, but now I'm here and I've served God Monday to Saturday. I'm serving God all the time. What's the church for? Right? right? See, if that's the purpose of the church, it's not necessary. We don't need the church as a place to serve. Right? So, so, so those are some of the problems that come in. And even celebrating God, we know that, I mean, we can turn on music, we can, we can worship and celebrate God anytime. We don't need the church for that. Right? Um, and consequently, I think there's a lot of people who have the sense that I don't really need the church. 
I don't know what the church is for, and so the church is a place I may go or may not go. It's, it's remarkable to me the number of full-time Christian workers overseas never attend a local church in this community. Right? Or they do so very half-heartedly. Well, there's some sense that I'm supposed to, so I do, but I really don't know why. There's no purpose in it. Right? And, and so something's missing. Well, well, I actually skipped over a couple small verses that I think are at the heart of this, right? And we need to go back and look at these. Uh, and and I, I really have this idea that the closer you, to, you get to the center of something, the more likely you will know its purpose, right? Um, there, are, there are a lot of activities going on at the tabernacle. They're bringing gifts. They're offering offerings. They're dedicating. They're serving. They're even celebrating. But uh, if you get farther and farther into this tent of meeting, I think we will get closer and closer to the real harder purpose of why it's there. Um, you can imagine maybe it's kind of like a sports event. Um, if you drive by a large stadium and you see people pouring into the stadium from the outside, you wouldn't really know what's going on, right? You would, you, you would think, well, it's some kind of large crowd gathering for some kind of entertainment, Maybe a sporting event, maybe a concert, you don't know. And from the outside, you just see that the purpose is the gathering of a large crowd. But you decide to go in and check it out. So you buy a ticket and you go in and you get in the stands and you sit down with the crowd and you discover that it's a cricket match. Well, this is interesting. So now you know a little more of what's going on here. But you see these people down there and you see them... You can't even make sense of what they're doing, right? You're looking at this and you're going... So you ask the guy next to you, you say... I see they're playing, apparently, cricket. What's the goal? What's the point? And so they, they explain it to you, and they use a lot of words like bowlers and, and bales and beamers, and, and, and you're going, after they've used all these words, and you're like, I still have no idea. I still have no idea what's going on. And I don't think he does either. He just, used, he just knows the words, right? So you decide to get a little closer. You walk down the stands, and somehow you get to the sidelines where the team is. And there, you, 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 know, you see the team, and these guys are there together. They're, they're uh, with each other. They're, uh, they, they have the same uniform. You think, oh, maybe this is the point. The goal of this all this is um, fellowship, this belonging and camaraderie to support each other. Being part of the team, that must be the goal. That's what this is about. Um, but then you actually, they hand you a, a uniform and a, a bat, and they said, you go out there, right? And you end up on the field. And you discover that there on the field, the players are the ones who really get it, right? I'm convinced with cricket, nobody else does. But, but they do, right? They get it. And they know what has to happen in order to win the game. And, and I think that's the way it is with uh, the, the, the tabernacle. Until we get to the very center of the tabernacle, we don't really know the purpose. Um, we, can, uh, we can be on the outer edge and see the crowd gather. We can move in closer to the altar and we could see them offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. And we may start getting the idea, oh, this is here for forgiveness of sins. Right? This is all about atonement. That's the purpose. Right? And that's vitally important. Right? I would never want to downplay the vital necessity of atonement in that altar. Right? But, but there's more. You can press farther in. And as you press farther in, you come to the tent itself. And, uh, and actually, at that time, nobody was allowed but the priest. But 
if you went into that place, you would get a greater sense of what's going on there. And there would be the lampstand and this table with loaves of bread and an incense altar. And maybe somebody would tell you that the incense altar is the prayers of the people. So you may think that prayer is the, is the purpose, that coming in and praying to God is the purpose. But you're still not to the center yet, right? You still haven't got to the innermost place. And you go through the curtain, you press into the innermost place, and there we find this. We find actually Moses there, right? Chapter 7, verse 89. After they brought all these offerings and gifts and, and uh, they've had these sacrifices for 12 days, it drops in this, this one little verse, but it's powerful. It says, And when Moses went into the tent of meeting, all the way into the holy of holy place, to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from, the, from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Okay, this is the center. You can't press in any farther than this, right? And Moses is there, and what's happening? Why does he go in there? Well, he goes in there into the Holy of Holies to meet with God and speak with Him. Right? That's what this is all about. All this elaborate, from the end of Exodus all the way to Numbers chapter 7, uh, what this is about is coming into God's presence. Being in a personal relationship with God where we meet Him and we can talk to Him and God speaks back to us. And of course, Moses was there as, as one of the only ones. He and the, the high priest were the only ones who were uh, enabled to go in there. But it wasn't a personal or individual thing. Moses was there representing the people. He was there on the behalf of the whole nation of Israel. Right? He wasn't there just for his own personal quiet time. And when God spoke to him over and over again, we see it in the book of Numbers, he is speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. Right? He's communicating uh, with the people through Moses as, as their representative. Um, and that's the whole thing. And that's, we said the first ten chapters, that's what this is all about. God with us. God with us in the center of our lives, in the center of the camp. Uh, but we've got to ask, what does that mean? What does it really mean for God to be with us? Um, it does not mean that God is some kind of team mascot, right? some vague idea or symbol to rally around. Now, certainly he is at some level that. I mean, certainly he rallies the camp and he is, like, if you need a mascot, like, this is a pretty good one, right? Forget the, the dog or the cougar. I mean, this is God Almighty, right? And certainly they rally around it, but that's not, that's not really what it means to have God with us. And it's not just about a good feeling, some kind of emotional experience. In fact, this describes Moses there in kind of a matter of fact, just chatting with God. Um, now, I don't know what Moses felt. I'm guessing, I'm guessing this had to be kind of cool. I don't know. You, you ask God a question and he answers back. I'm thinking there's some emotions to that. But it's not really recorded that way. Right? It's not about the emotional experience. Uh, it is not about a genie in a bottle um, that, that, that they could manipulate and get some kind of power so that they could get God to do whatever they want. Now, God was a power and he would show his power as he went forth and they would... Uh, accomplish great victory because the mighty God was with them. But, but that's not what God's presence ultimately meant. 
And certainly it wasn't some kind of good luck charm to warm off, ward off bad luck. Uh, no, what we see is this. God with us means God speaks to us. God with us means God speaks to us. Uh, in the book of Numbers alone, there are over 150 times where God in one way or another is speaking to the people. God with us means God is talking. He is speaking. He is communicating himself with us and to us. Right? Moses could ask God questions and God would answer him. And God instructed him and God gave his commands. Right? God's with us. God with us. If it's anything, it is God speaking. Okay, then we jump over to chapter 8. Another uh, really obscure couple verses that commentators scratch their heads trying to make sense of. But when you understand this purpose, it makes perfect sense. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, now the Lord spoke to Moses. Right? So this is one of the many times that God spoke. And he said to him, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. That seems like kind of a bizarre and random verse. Okay, Like in the middle of all this, oh, and by the way, don't forget the lampstand, and make sure you point it in the right direction. That's essentially his instruction here. Point it in the right direction. This is talking about the lampstand in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but outside the curtain. There was a lampstand there. And it was shaped like a tree. Uh, a lot of almond blossoms on it. Probably representing perhaps the tree of life in the garden. And he says, make sure it's shining in the right, right direction. And you're like, okay, like this is just seems random, right? But I don't think it's random. God, because uh, here's the picture. There was the holy place there was the lampstand, and there was the table of showbread, and there was the incense altar. And basically what he's saying is, is point it so that it's shining on the loaves of bread. And on that table were 12 loaves of, of bread, and they represented the people of Israel uh, in the presence of God. And he says, make sure you're shining that light on those 12 loaves of bread. And it's this picture of this very thing. The, the light is illuminating God's truth and His message to the people. Right? God with them means that God is... A God of light and revelation, it is proof that He is with them, right? And so it's, it's a picture of what, what just happened in, 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 with Moses, right? God is speaking. God is speaking. Well, now are we closer to identifying the purpose of the church? Well, I hope so. Um, now, just to be clear, there are some differences between the Old Covenant and New, right? There are differences. Uh, under the Old Covenant, uh, the people did not have unlimited access to God. Their sins meant most of them had to stay outside the tabernacle and only Moses or the priest could go in. Jesus changed all that. Right? He, he was a better priest, a better sacrifice. It was based on better promises and therefore it was a better covenant. And so as a result of all that, now we do have unlimited, unhindered access into God's presence. Right? Hebrews 9 tells us that, 9 and 10. We can draw into the very holy place in heaven through Christ. Uh, so there's a sense in which um, we, we don't need a tabernacle because now we have the very tabernacle in heaven and we can enter there individually and personally, anytime, any place. In fact, Jesus uh, invites us that. In the writer of Hebrews, we have a high priest right, who um, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence, draw near to the presence of God. Draw near into His presence. 
Um, so the question then is, if we can do this personally, then really why do we need the church, right? I can just do this on my own. I don't need a priest, and I'm not a priest, by the way. You don't enter into Jesus' presence through me. You do it through Jesus alone. So we can say, well, why, why doesn't this make the church unnecessary? But the New Testament is very clear that we come into God's presence and we experience his presence in two very different ways. One, in our body, which is a temple, which we do personally and individually. But secondly, God's house, God's church, is also a temple of God. When we gather together as God's church, we are and we become an actual temple of God where his presence dwells. And so in, in the New Testament, it's clear that we can enter into and experience God's presence by both of those channels, personally and privately, as we go right directly to the throne through Jesus. But secondly, as we gather and experience him in the church. Right? And both are vital and necessary. Some people make the mistake of only engaging and only coming to God's presence through the church and never experience it individually. Some people go to the other extreme and they only experience it individually and they uh, never engage Christ in the church and meet him through the church. The scripture is clear that we need both. So here's what I believe is the main purpose of church, um, one of them anyway, is simply the place where we come to meet God. Now, of course, I don't mean the building. When I talk about church, I don't mean the building. I don't mean that somehow God's presence is in this building. I mean the gathered people. Right, so we could gather outside in the parking lot or under a bush, but I'm thankful for air conditioning, and it's cool that we get to be in here. Right? If it rains, it's good. Right? Nothing wrong with that. But what I mean is the gathered people. We, we, we are the church, and it is a place where when we gather, we should meet God in a unique and special way through the coming together as his body. Um, and, and all the activities and, and ministries of the church should, should focus on this goal and this end. Let's think about that. Evangelism. Is evangelism important? Absolutely. Right? Getting people saved, getting them to come to the cross and deal with their sin is extremely important. But that's not the end, right? We bring them to Christ and, and have them experience the cleansing grace of forgiveness so that what? So they can draw near to God. Right? So they can come into his presence. Right? Um, making disciples is awesome, and it's extremely important. But it is not the end goal. Uh, I'll ask you this, what is a disciple? Anybody? What is a disciple? A follower, right? Greek word means a follower, a follower. Well, okay, what is a follower? Well, a follower is somebody who listens to somebody and does what they say. Uh, if, I, if I want you to follow me and I say, hey, come this way, I'm going to show you, you know, a basket of gold. And so I start going there, and you're like, yeah, he doesn't have a little basket of gold. I'm not doing what he says. You're not following me, right? A follower is somebody who hears and listens and then does what they're told, right? And so Jesus said in, the, in, in, in Acts 28, I mean, in Matthew 28, that Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. In other words, a disciple is somebody who meets God, hears Him, and does what He says. Right? Uh, making a disciple culminates in a person who knows how to listen to God and who knows how to do that 
corporately in the church as well as personally in their own life. Uh, We've not made a true disciple if we've not taught them how to meet God and hear him and submit in obedience to all he says. We can go on down the list. Fellowship. Um, Fellowship and community is great, but if, if it's not done for the purpose of experiencing God's presence, it's just a social club. Um, helping the poor is great. Um, and the heart for that comes from meeting with God. Right? The church should be on mission. We should be helping the poor. We should be taking His kingdom out. But the heart for that comes because we spent time with God and He's imprinted His heart and His values on us. Right? And that's what motivates us to go out. Even worship. Right? Even worship must flow out of this. Right? Worship is ultimately response. Response to what? When you look through the Bible at people who had the most, um, like, fall-on-your-face worship kind of experiences, like, they can't even speak and they're quivering on the ground, why did they do that? Because they just met God. Right? They met God in person, and they responded in awe and wonder and worship. Our worship is vibrant and real only when we've come here and we've experienced God, we've met Him in some way. And so the purpose of the church is to help people to be a place where people corporately draw near into the presence of God. Um, part of that, the second kind of corollary is, is the vital importance of the preaching of the Word. Uh, Moses primarily experienced God's presence through God speaking to him. And so, uh, likewise for us, experiencing God's presence is primarily, uh, not only, but largely about God speaking His Word to us. God speaks. That's why we make a big deal of preaching here, right? That's why it's really not an optional one. Like, we never say, well, this Sunday we're not going to have preaching because it's not that important. We're just going to worship instead, right? We we don't ever do that. Because that is the primary way that God does meet us in His Word. And so Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and, and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, I charge you, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right? This is the this is the calling of the church. Here's even a better one. Second Peter chapter one. Peter's writing to the church uh, that is being persecuted and struggling, and he wants to encourage them. So he he uh, he encouraged them them this way. He says, "Look, the message I gave you was not something I received because I read a book in the library." Right? Peter was one of those guys that actually walked with Jesus. So Peter's one of the few guys that says to them, look, I'm passing to you what I received directly. And so in, in 2 Peter 1, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We didn't just make this up. It wasn't a myth. Rather, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And then he references the time, remember when Jesus appeared on, on the mount? Uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And Peter was there, right? He says, For when, uh, when he had received honor and glory from the Father on that mountain, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, 
This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice, uh, this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on, on the holy mountain. That's pretty cool, right? Peter experienced God and his glory face to face, right? And, and, and so Peter says, look, I can speak from experience. I've met with God, with Jesus, not only in his earthly form, but in his glorified state. And, and God the Father spoke, and I heard that voice with my own physical ears. This is my son. That is, that is awesome, right? And he says, I'm speaking to you out of that eyewitness experience. Nothing could be better than that, right? Wrong, right? Notice what Peter says next, and I'm going to read it. There's, I have two ESV versions, and they're different. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure why. Um, uh, but I like this one better. Notice what it says. Uh, so, so, and we, we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. We have something more sure. We have something more reliable, more dependable, better. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. And get these words. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right? Now, I think, they, I, think the, <laughs> I think the ESV toned that down a little because maybe the prophetic word may not be actually more better than uh, Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. But the point is, it is just as reliable. Right? What was recorded for us in Scripture is just as powerful and reliable and life-transforming as what Peter saw when Jesus was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? And he says, it is like a lamp. And I'm, I'm wondering, was he, was he thinking about this verse in Numbers? It is like a lamp shining in the darkness, proclaiming truth that you can live by. God is speaking to you. He's revealing himself to you through his word. And certainly you can do that on your own by reading, and I, I hope you are. Right? I hope you are in the Word on your own regularly. Right? But the truth is, um, there's a way you can encounter God in the speaking of His Word in church that's just different. I don't know that it's better. It's probably not better. It's just different corporately. right? God has given, He says, to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. All five of those gifts are gifts related to teaching the Word. Right? So a church needs to be a place that's deeply committed to the preaching and teaching of the Word. And, and, and there are gifted people, hopefully I'm one of them, um, and there's others in our midst who, who can share those gifts that are unique in, in bringing us into the presence of God through His Word. By hearing God speak. And, and, and here's the thing. God, when you come on Sunday morning, why do you come? I hope that you understand that God wants to meet you here. And on Sunday morning, God wants to speak to you personally through his word. That God has a message for you. right? And it's personal and it's real. And we experience it corporately. But, but it, and it's not my words, right? It's Scripture and it's the Holy Spirit. And, and that's why we do church. Right? So that we meet God, we encounter His presence, uh, He speaks to us. 
And lastly, we celebrate our great salvation. And we're going to talk about that next week, um, the Passover celebration. We do celebrate, we worship. Um, so what do we do with all this? Well, let me just uh, give some real practical, simple ways that we can do church better. Uh, first, uh, it is group participation. It's a group event, right? Church is not something we do individually. It's corporate. It's a group activity. And that's why we gather, right? And we can gather in a home. We can gather in a, in a larger church like this or a huge church. It's not the size that matters. It's the gathering. Um, I, I, I kind of make fun, and it's, it would be fun to sing the 12 days of dedication. <laughs> I won't. Um, but it's very interesting. And commentators look at this. It uses up a lot of space. It's like 85 verses. And imagine if you're the guy copying the Bible and you get to Numbers chapter 7. It's like, I'm taking the day off, man. I'm not, the same thing over 12 times. You know, the bowl, 70 shekels, you know, 130 shekels of silver. The bowl, 70 shekels of silver. 12 times, right? My hand just hurts just thinking about it. And we know how it is because, honestly, how many of you have actually read through the whole thing? Like about the third time you realize that it's repeating. How many of you, honest, just jump to the end? I did. I do, right? It's like, okay, I get it. A lot of bowls, a lot of bowls. A lot of stuff. Okay, get to the end, right? Why? Right? Why take... And, and, um, and in, in numbers, they don't waste a lot of words, right? They did have to write this down, that scrolls were limited in size and length, right? There was reasons to be concise. Why say the same thing over 12 times? Uh, one commentator, Gordon Wenham, puts it this way. He says, a theological purpose underlies this wordiness. It is to emphasize as strongly as possible that every tribe had an equal stake in the worship of God and that each was fully committed to the support of the tabernacle and its priesthood. It set a precedent and demonstrated that the worship was for every tribe and supported by every tribe. And how much that should be true of the church? that the ministry of the church is supported financially and in service by every tribe, every family, every individual. Right? We all ought to have a place. And for them, it was how they participated in the worship. By bringing that silver bowl piled with flour is how they participated with the priests and with Moses and what was going on. It only, not only supported its function, but it also joined in the activities in the worship. Right? So, so uh, John writes in Third John, um, you will do well to send them on their journey, some people visiting, in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. Okay, they're probably missionaries. Amen? We ought to support people like these. Amen? I think you need to put that in your prayer letter next next week, right? Hey, my preacher just said this. We ought to support people like these, uh, that we may be fellow workers of the truth, right? A lot of us are here because people back home support us this way. But Paul also says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, that's double pay, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Right? It's right and good to support the the ministry of the church, especially where we're preaching the word. Right? That's good. Um, secondly, we support uh, and participate in our service. We don't have time to talk about it, but the present, 
presenting of the Levites is an amazing picture of Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I'm just going to read the verse. You can try to make the connections. But it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, literally your service that gives God worship. Right? It's good and right to serve. And, and then not just preaching in the worship band, but teaching Sunday school and helping with the PowerPoint and all the, all the things, making coffee, right? All the things that serve to support the function and ministry of the church. Um, and lastly, we should be attentive to the Word. Right? If meeting God is ultimately hearing Him speak, right, what a privilege that we get to come and God speaks to us week after week as we gather as His body. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.